food chains. The authorities have launched an investigation. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis on this Monday morning. Western anger grows over Ukraine as Russia faces further sanctions. Markets turn to the upside, even with the extra risks. And investors prepare this week for earnings from Apple and Facebook, among others. Locally, some 4,000 people turn up to buy Hong Kong flats at Montvert. Looking at these uh, or buying these flats sight unseen. We'll take a look at that. More than 300 Hong Kong and China broker dealers have signed up for the Shanghai Hong Kong Market Access Pilot Program. And as you heard there in our news, McDonald's suspends all meat products from Shanghai Husi Food. Those stories coming up in just a few short minutes. As we get started this morning, we look at how investors are discounting geopolitical risk, particularly of Ukraine and Gaza. First, Richard Clarida from the big bond firm PIMCO. Let's stipulate that in these countries, Ukraine, Israel, Syria, these are all tragic losses of human life. They're all terrible situations. But typically, these impact the global economy or investors as they impact big macro factors like oil prices, like, like they impact contagion, you know, boots on the ground. And so thus far, there are hot spots in the world. It's a disaster if you're in them. But, but so far, it's obviously, as we see in market reactions, not really elevated to the level that it's become a global threat. So, so again, investors looking beyond uh, the initial story. Next, we hear from Alan Kruger at Princeton University. This is first and foremost a human tragedy in, in both of those places. Uh, as long as it stays contained, it shouldn't have much impact on our economy. Uh, it will raise risk. Uh, uncertainty is never good for markets. It can affect the energy markets. But uh, it's not going to be a direct threat to our economy unless we overreact. More from Alan Kruger and Richard Clarida later in the program. Our live guests include David Goud of Edmund Rothschild Asset Management on markets, Justin Wu from Bloomberg on Japan's nuclear restart, and why China and Hong Kong need to embrace wind power. And then Barry Wood online from Washington for a look at the week ahead. And here's how markets are moving in Asia in the early trade, uh, mostly green numbers. Again, as we say, investors sort of looking beyond the geopolitical factors. Uh, the dollar yen. Now, 101.35, the euro's at $1.35 U.S. The uh, stock markets that are up and running, all to the positive. Australia up a point, and in Seoul, the Kospi up about eight points. That's a gain of about half a percent. And Japanese uh, futures, we get the cash read in just a moment. Japanese futures up more than 100 points, about three quarters of one percent. Well, the West is tightening the screws on Russia over the downing of the Malaysian airliner in Ukraine. Matthew Price reports. There's a widespread belief in the international community that Russia, at the very least, turned a blind eye to the supply of sophisticated weaponry to the rebels here, and everyone believes that now there needs to be an independent investigation and that no more evidence should be destroyed. The Dutch Prime Minister said he had an extremely intense conversation with President Vladimir Putin today. The German Chancellor Angela Merkel also spoke to President Putin. The Germans' view is that this is now his last chance. The Russian ambassador was summoned to the Foreign Office in London the view from Downing Street is that Putin's had his last chance and that the European Union now needs to take a different approach to Russia. Secretary of State John Kerry is pointing fingers at Russian complicity in the downing of the plane. He made the U.S. case against Moscow in the most explicit terms yet. 
Now we have a video showing a launcher moving back out into Russia with a missing, at least one missing uh, missile on it. So we, we have enormous sort of input about this, uh, which points fingers. Mr. Kerry demanded that Russia take responsibility for actions of the allied separatists. In markets late last week, there was the sharp initial reaction. More from Richard Clarida. When you have the combination of what we saw in, in Israel and obviously the, the, the tragic shooting down of an airliner, I mean, as the news is coming in, you don't know how bad it's going to, mm-hmm. to be. As we heard earlier, though, markets quickly looked beyond that and the initial fears uh, that were raised. It doesn't mean, though, that there isn't still a lot to worry about. We've gone through a period of some private sector deleveraging, but globally there's still a ton of leverage in the global economy. There's an overhang of of leverage. And I think the the second factor is we're in the fifth year of a recovery. There's still vast excess capacity uh, globally, double-digit unemployments in in Europe. And and the the global economy still has not found a growth model to fully employ resources in the absence of the sort of imbalances we saw before. So that's an ongoing headwind. So that's Richard Clarida from PIMCO, and in particular, Alan Kruger, back to the Princeton professor, he's concerned about Europe. Where we're vulnerable is Europe still is not completely stable. The, uh, in my view, uh, the risks faced by European governments, by their banking system, still pose a threat. Are, there are problems that have been kicked down the road. They've made a little bit of progress, but there's a lot, lot of distance to go. So we'll bring in our live guests uh, now, and first Barry Wood, and a bit later we'll speak with David Goud from Rothschilds. And just uh, as we say good morning to Barry, I'll tell you that oil prices are fairly stable, $107.10. That's actually $0.14 lower this morning in Asia. Gold with a slight uptick at $1,311.80 an ounce, up $2.40. So our first guest, Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent. Good day to you, Barry. And good morning to you, Brian. So markets are signaling they can handle the civil war, but they can't maybe handle a return to the Cold War. Which one is it? Well, that is indeed the question. I think that it's getting dangerously close to something resembling that old Cold War, which we thought was over 25 years ago. Yeah, you mentioned on the program uh, several times over the past couple of months that that really is hanging out there, that um, the period of calm that we had uh, where Russia was sort of partners with the West seems to have gone. Well, regrettably, I think it has gone, and uh, I don't think the crisis in Ukraine was planned by Vladimir Putin. I think he has uh, acted defensively, but he is in a corner because, as John Kerry, the Secretary of State, said, the Americans have got these pictures. And this is probably going to be indisputable that the Russians were involved in moving these missile launchers into this rebel area. And uh, that may explain why Vladimir Putin has been so silent on this issue and that uh, their media is blaming Ukraine. But this is a very serious matter when you've got... uh, well over a hundred Dutch people who have died in this, and it's been shot out of the sky at the distance of eight miles up. You know, this is this is a serious, serious crisis. So Europe and the United States are planning extra sanctions. What would those extra sanctions look like? Well, if we go to sector three, what's called stage three sanctions, that would be the entire Russian oil and gas industry. Now, that's not the point 
that we've reached. But already the Americans moved last Wednesday to sanction two more Russian companies, Rosnaf and Novatech. The Europeans have not done that, but when their foreign ministers meet on Tuesday, I think they're likely to go further. Essentially, the answer to your question is Russia is being cut off from finance in the United States to borrow on U.S. markets, and they face the threat of having that happen in London and in Frankfurt. That's very serious for the Russian economy, and as all sanctions, are two-edged swords. So, you know, Russia has some cards to play, but it does mean, to go back to your opening, that uh, we are in a stage where Russia has become isolated and shunned completely by the West. How badly are the original sanctions biting? Apparently not very much. The damage has not been significant. Now, you've got the Russian business community that really has been beseeching their president to not go any further on this. But uh, I don't think there's evidence that the sanctions are really biting as yet. But, you know, you've got to have finance. The Russian economy is already declining from the level it reached last year. It's not growing very fast. But I think in Russia, political matters always supersede economics anyway. So I think the Russian people who have suffered for centuries, uh, they're used to it. I don't think they respond in the same way as people in, in Asia or people in North America. Is President Obama looking weak or strong? I think <laughs> that's a good question. Clearly, if you listen to talk radio, which is 90% Tea Party conservative here in the States, they think that he's exceedingly weak. But clearly, on the Ukraine-Russia business, he's been strong. Now I'm saying objectively, or at least my perspective, he's certainly ahead of the Europeans. The Europeans have vacillated. They don't want to move on this. The European Union is 28 countries, and they can't agree on sanctions. Well, they get so Some much are more gas than others on oil and yeah, gas. Yeah, they just get so much gas from Russia that um, you know they're in a slightly more perilous, and they're so close to uh, Russia as well. But go ahead. Well, I think I think it's a mixed bag. I think that um, the president doesn't like Mr. Putin. And I think he's outraged at this latest incident, as indeed the whole world is outraged by what happened. But the Russian complicity in this, and perhaps that explains why the Russians are so silent, because, I mean, we're talking war crimes here. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I'm just not sure what they're talking about in the Kremlin, but I'm sure they're talking intensively. Okay, so if President Obama is possibly the most uh, powerful person in the world, perhaps Vladimir Putin is number two. I'm sure many would argue with that, but um, it could be. And um, perhaps the third most valuable person, was she particularly dovish last week? Are you talking about uh, Angela Merkel? No, well, no, I was, I'd actually, oh, Janet Yellen. this was I'm, my, this is my silly segue. Brain. Yeah, this is my segue back into, <laughs> into the Fed and some discussion about the U.S. economy, but I should have been a little bit more clear on that. But yes, Janet Yellen testifying before the Congress. Uh, she continued to say lots of slack in the labor market, thus she was pretty dovish. Yeah, she was dovish. And uh, look, there will be no interest rate rise in 2014, but that's only uh, four and a half more months. Uh, there will be interest rate rises, I think, in 2015. But I don't think that was a particularly uh, important set of uh, questions or answers from Ms. Yellen. 
I think, Brian, to come around to a position I've heard you voice, certainly more than my own feeling on it, I do think the inflationary pressures building here in the States at Consumer Price Index this week, and uh, that shows, look, if you go back two or three months, you now have an annualized inflation rate in the United States well in excess of 2%. So this is something to watch. Yes, uh, I read that small companies uh, are preparing to raise wages. The number is going up a little bit. I mean, it's still only around 20% or so, but it's a little couple of ticks up from previous months. Uh, so it does raise the question, is it is it possible that um, one near-term inflection point might be that people think that the Fed is behind the curve? If the Fed is indeed behind the curve on inflation. That's a real problem for Ms. Yellen. Now, you and I have spoken in the past that the Fed Open Market Committee is divided. There's, there's the hawks and the doves on this. But clearly, Ms. Yellen, as you say, is in the dovish camp. But I think she can shift quickly if the evidence comes in that inflationary pressure is building. You know what's perplexing uh, is, and perhaps you can explain it, the 10-year Treasury note yield is at 248. Now, that is some 12 to 15 basis points below where we were when we got the really strong June jobs report. It's kind of tough to figure out. I suppose you could say the geopolitical risks is a part of it, but there's something else out there as well. Well, you know, I'm not sure that I've got an answer for you, Brian, but I, I do agree. Geopolitical considerations are very much at work in that. And, uh, you know, the fact that you can have a tenure at that low rate is extraordinary. It's going to go up. And when it goes up, I know I'm shifting topics slightly, then, you know, U.S. debt payments are going to really go on the upside. And that's going to increase the problems that we face here. And it may slow down the kind of recovery that is already not very strong. If you go back to the winter, we had a weak winter economy that was declining at a 2.9% rate in the first quarter. I was optimistic two or three weeks ago. I'm less optimistic now. I think that uh, you know we're not going to get this rapid bounce back for the rest of the year. It's just kind of perplexing that people, you know, some people are out there worried about inflation and then you see the bond yield ticking down as much as it has. It's down from 303 on January, whatever the first trading day of the year was. Uh, um, so, you know, it doesn't suggest that inflation is about ready because you don't want to hold bonds if inflation starts to run. Well, you certainly don't. And uh, look, I think that's a geopolitical factor. Yeah. I mean, that goes all the way back to Lehman in 2008. I mean, you know, U.S. bond yields reflect the world situation. It's pretty serious. Okay, if you don't mind sticking uh, on the line, uh, let's bring in David God, Senior Fund Manager at Edmund Rothschild and the Asset Management uh, Program there. David, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Well, we have uh, some other interesting things coming up this week. The Apple and Facebook earnings are particularly interesting from Barry's side over in the U.S. Uh, and it seems like a lot of asset managers are turning positive on China equities. This is your part of the world. This is what you look at. And you are definitely in that camp, are you not? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned uh, Apple and Facebook, and uh, 
the, the, the first point I would make on this is that we are extremely positive on the uh, U.S. tech segment at the moment, and uh, we recommend to invest in the equity side, and not so much on the software internet space, which has been quite well priced and is relatively expensive, but more on the hardware side. And you mentioned Apple, but we could name Cisco, we could name IBM to a certain extent, Intel. So, so do you like the big, um, the big large cap tech companies that have been around for a long time? Absolutely, a big large tech which have been long forgotten by investors and are trading currently at quite a discount to the average market and a significant discount to the so internet names. What's interesting is that they all took a hit in March, April. Um, the ones that you're talking about, not as badly as the social media and some of the biotech and other tech companies, but they've come up pretty nicely here and we're sort of almost retesting previous highs for some of those countries. Do you think we break through them or do you think that that's uh, the top barrier? No, we will break through them because clearly the valuations are still attractive. Uh, you know, from segments which the market is not considering so much like the, the PC segment at the moment, I mean, we're not seeing a, a revival, but at least we're seeing some sort of stabilization in terms of volumes. Prices also are stabilizing. And so this should provide actually some margin expansion to some of those names. And this earning momentum is what's going to actually be a lift. So, so if you like some of those companies, you must like, uh, say, Tencent out here and Alibaba when it finally lists. Now, we will definitely consider Alibaba when it comes out, yeah, and that's, uh, that's for and sure. And particularly last week, they said they were going to price it some 20-odd percent below what they think the company's worth. Which wouldn't be a bad thing, yeah, no, absolutely. Oh, you definitely don't want to talk about <laughs> Alibaba. Okay, we'll go a different direction. Uh, yeah, um, but uh, generally speaking, I uh, started off by saying you like China equity generally. Does that mean you also like the old economy stocks uh, or mostly the new economy? I mean, what do you like? Well, you know, we've, we've been talking uh, some times ago about Sinopec and the uh, SOE reforms, and that was a big theme in our view that people should pay more attention to. Then uh, two weeks ago, we've got this announcement by Datang Power, which is selling its famous asset, which is turning coal into chemicals or gas, which is uh, economically absolutely uh, a complete disaster and is uh, actually generating big losses. Now, they're selling back to the China Reform Holding Company, which belongs to the SASAC. This is a major turnaround. Around, which means for the first time you see a public SOE, an SOE, selling some distressed assets back uh, to uh, an external party and it's going to be refocusing on the profitable uh, activity. And that deserves to be re-rated. And we think that if Datang is doing it, then you can expect actually a lot more SOEs to do the same. So here's a very interesting thing. You know, you've got 300 brokers now looking to get into this market access deal between Shanghai and Hong Kong. And this might explain why all this money has rushed into Hong Kong. We're at the upper limit of the, uh, of the currency uh, uh, the convertibility range at 775. We can't get much stronger, so it shows that funds have come into Hong Kong, but asset prices are not particularly high, so it must be poised to do something. Is that what it's poised for? It should be. We should see, actually, a lot more action on this. And, uh, you know, all those SOEs, I mean, some sectors, you mentioned the, the brokerage industry. Uh, we know a lot of brokers need to recapitalize. So they're going to need uh, on top to, if they want to be strong in this Hong Kong Shanghai Connect, if they want to be able to offer more margin trading activity, if they want to sell more funds, uh, they're going to need, actually, to have a balance sheet, which is a lot stronger. And uh, so they, they need to come up clean to the market in order 
order to uh, as much as possible in order to attract investors. So for people who want to take on a little extra risk, uh, is it wise maybe to buy ahead of that money rushing in? It should. I mean, it, it seems to be a, a fair bet considering the, the current valuation. You know, we're trading on uh, eight times in uh, the eight shares, uh, below eight times on the eight share market. Uh, you've got a large scope of company which, which are available. Uh, we now know the sectors which you should avoid, uh, some infrastructure, construction related, uh, the solar segment, stay away from the coal segment. But so aside you from that, avoid cement and steel and... To, to a certain extent, yeah, well, we, we, we are extremely selective in the names and we would take the, the top quality names. Yeah. Okay, let's go back to the big macro picture. Uh, I've been talking with Barry about uh, geopolitical risk, and we didn't mention too much about Gaza. Not that that really impacts on markets, but of course, people always worried about the Middle East and this uh, Russia-Ukraine story. Uh, does that impact on Hong Kong much at all, uh, other than perhaps raising oil prices? Well, you know, I mean, the volatility has been extremely low for the past month, so definitely any of these uh, events, wars, or uh, tragedy are uh, affecting sentiment. And they forces basically to, to reassess somehow the situation. Now, we think that we've got a, a large scope enough of assets to see that uh, if you are selective enough, then you see some uh, class of assets being affected by these uh, tragedies. But at the same time, the rest uh, of the market mm -hmm. is still performing relatively well. And so far, the valuation are such that uh, this should not change the overall positive trend on the, on the market. Okay, back to Barry Wood. As you look out over this week, Barry, what will you focus Focus on the most. Well, I really like what David said about um, Apple, Netflix, Facebook, IBM. Uh, I mean, I just think that uh, we've got so many earnings coming this week. I think the tech sector in the states looks really good. Amazon. We we uh, this um, this deal between um, IBM and Apple, I think, is very important. There may be a new iPhone coming in September. Uh, I think I'm going to focus on earnings, Brian. Yes, earnings. And tell me briefly about the IMF, because I think they are coming out with a report. Anything there that you would be watching out for? Well, I think they are going to slightly downgrade forecast growth for 2014, but only by about a tenth of a percent. That press conference is going to be down in Mexico City, but that comes on Thursday. I think the IMF has got the most skilled forecasters, but if it's anything more than a tenth of a percent on the downside, that would be significant. And it, it's uh, what's interesting is that they were going to ticket to the downside for this year, but they were raising it for next year. Well, they should, shouldn't they? I mean, my goodness, we're so many years since this recovery allegedly began, and the world economy has not performed the way it should. So I hope we can, and I hope they see that we're going to go up in 2015. All right, Barry, I'll let you go, and I'll finish up the half hour with uh, David, give him a bit more time. Thanks very much, Barry, for joining us here. Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent, on the line from Washington with a Monday morning look at the U.S. and the global economy. So um, let me put the same question to you, David. Uh, as you look out this week, um, what's most on your mind as an asset manager? To tell people that, you know, a lot of the people we trot through this program are trying to sell stocks. Uh, they're on the sell side. David's on the buy side. He makes money by making good investments for, for you if you are uh, an owner of the funds that Rothschilds has. So what will you be looking at this week? Well, definitely the earnings season will be critical. You know, this is the second quarter. Uh, we know the full year expectation in particular in Europe. Europe are relatively low at the moment, between 8 to 9% growth. Uh, any surprise on the upside?
side would be definitely a big plus. Uh, we've seen already the banks in the US, you know, producing numbers which were above expectation. Uh, I was, as we discussed, we expect the, the tech sector in the US also to surprise on the upside. And don't forget that Europe, uh, the main catalyst to European uh, equity momentum is the US market. I mean, which comes second after the, what's happening on their domestic market. But clearly, that trend out of the US is extremely promising and European equity stocks should benefit from that, uh, from that leading indicator, if I may say. Also, from the weekend here, uh, Xinhua had a report out that um, quoted the China Banking Regulatory Commission Vice Chairman Yan Qingmin saying that internet financing is complex, but that it shouldn't be blocked. Um, is that sort of a thumbs up for some of these companies like uh, Tencent and Alibaba that are dabbling in, in internet finance? Well, you know, this is the interesting thing is that the, the, the Chinese internet segment is very interesting because it shows that when there is not too much regulation, uh, you may see actually a lot of innovation, development and growth. Uh, now, it seems like, you know, this development in the financial space needs some regulation. So it's a good thing to see some, uh, some stepping up from the, from the government and the authorities. But that shouldn't prevent the growth in that segment. And uh, China is leading the world in, in that space, I must say. And I think the last time you were on, I asked you this as well, uh, just in terms of things to worry about. Do you worry too much about the China-Hong Kong relationship at the moment and the possibilities of Occupy Central and, uh, and those sorts of risks, political risks? Well, definitely, we think that there is room for the two parties to, to get together and to find a, a proper way to, to co-develop in the future, you know, the liberalization of the capital market in China, the opening up of the renminbi. I mean, there is room for Hong Kong to, to grow on this development. Now, from a political point of view, definitely this requires some uh, understanding and some, uh, some, some commitment on both sides. It, it's not an easy situation, but with proper discussion and negotiation, we, we hope that we will find a, a proper outcome. So, I mean, not, not to worry at this stage, but clearly uh, uh, you need to find a proper balance. All right, David, thanks very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. A pleasure as usual. And that is David God, Senior Fund Manager at Edmund de Rothschild Asset Management. Well, the Hong Kong property market is starting to heat up. Some 4,000 people turned up over the weekend to try to buy 260 flats at Chung Kong's Montvert project in Taipo. They had to sign an agreement that they would not be able to see the flat. This is because the site is still under construction and is considered dangerous by the developer. Well, it's about 29 minutes after 8 o'clock. The news is coming up short. see how the markets are moving. Uh, Australia, the equity market there is up about a third of a percent the same in Seoul. And uh, looking at the dollar and its trade against the yen, it's now worth 101.32 yen. The euro had moved down below 135, but it's back up over now at 1.353. The pound is trading at 13 Hong Kong dollars and 24 cents. And the uh, latest uh, fixing rate for the renminbi, 6.156. So we're getting ready uh, for the news here in, in just a moment. We'll take a look uh, at the weather for you today. Mainly fine. Some isolated showers expected and uh, quite hot the maximum temperature about 32 the outlook for the next few days fine and very hot just a few showers here and there uh, through about the middle of the week money for nothing at 8 30 the news with samantha butler 
A rebel spokesman in eastern Ukraine says almost 200 bodies from the Malaysian airliner that came down in a separatist-held area have been loaded onto refrigerated rail wagons in the nearby town of Torres. A spokesman for European monitors said they'd seen a number of body bags in the wagons. The jet is believed to have been shot down by a missile last week, killing all 298 people on board. The Netherlands Prime Minister Mark Rutte says a Dutch team will lead the identification of bodies. It is agreed that the Netherlands will lead the international coordination of the identification of the victims. The Dutchman Gert Wibbelink will lead the team. Tonight a military plane will leave from Eindhoven Airport heading to Kharkiv. On board are people and equipment to set up a coordination centre in Kharkiv. Gaza has suffered the highest number of deaths in a single day since the Israeli offensive against Palestinian militants began earlier this month. Almost 90 Palestinians, mainly civilians, were reported dead yesterday. The United Nations Security Council is due to hold an emergency meeting in New York to discuss the situation in Gaza. The Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has condemned the killings of civilians in Sheja'ir. Dozens more civilians, including children, have been killed in Israeli military strikes in the Shejaya neighborhood in Gaza. I condemn this atrocious action. Israel must exercise maximum restraint and do far more to protect the civilians. Earlier in a televised national address, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said the offensive would continue for as long as it took to restore Israeli security. The U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry will travel to Cairo later today for talks on an immediate ceasefire. The United Nations nuclear watchdog, the IAEA, says Iran is complying with an agreement reached last November to curb its nuclear program. The BBC's Bethany Bell reports. Under the terms of the interim deal, Iran stopped enriching uranium up to 20%. And it also undertook to dilute or convert its remaining stockpile of the material. The IAEA says that process is now complete. There's concern about higher enriched uranium because it can be converted relatively quickly to make a nuclear weapon, something Tehran says it doesn't want. But a long-term solution to the row over Iran's nuclear work still seems a long way off. Shanghai Food and Drug Authorities have ordered that suspect meat products supplied by a local food company to McDonald and KFC outlets should be taken off the shelf for safety concerns. Xinhua quoted local media as reporting that a local meat company had reprocessed meat products that had outlived their shelf life and supplied them to fast food chains. The authorities have launched an investigation. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing, the second half hour of our program featuring more news in this segment. Also, later in this half hour, we'll be speaking with Justin Wu, the Asia-Pacific analyst for Bloomberg New Energy Finance. We'll be looking at wind power and also whether or not uh, the restart uh, in nuclear power in Japan will be on schedule. But first, we return to the news flow. A rebel spokesman in eastern Ukraine says almost 200 bodies from the Malaysian airliner that was brought down last week have been loaded onto refrigerated rail wagons in the town of Torres. A spokesman for European monitors said that they had seen a number of body bags in the wagons. 
we were able to observe three cars. Um, indeed, they were refrigerated. All of the bags we saw were tagged. We were told there were 167 bodies there, although we had no, we have no way of independently verifying that. Nearly 300 people were on board the Malaysian Airlines flight, two-thirds of them from Holland. Dutch investigators should arrive at the crash site in uh, Ukraine later today. The Dutch Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, also announced that Holland would lead the effort to identify the dead. The BBC's David Stern in Kiev was asked if it's known where exactly the bodies are being moved to. Still unclear uh, where they're going to be going. Uh, we have been hearing from the rebels, obviously. They say that they're going to hold on to them until the uh, the international experts arrive. Um, they, in particular, talked about 12 Malaysian experts. And, in fact, um, I was uh, with the Malaysian de- delegation. Um, they had said that, uh, here in Kiev, that is, um, they said that they are uh, still here in the city, obviously. Um, they're possibly leaving tomorrow, although there are still very great concerns about their security. So, uh, the question of what is going to happen, where the bodies are going to go, and what's going to happen next is still very much in the, up in the air. Malaysia's transport minister, Liao Tiong Lai, is among the officials from his country now in Kiev. And he's cast doubt that any international investigators will be allowed near the crash site. The Ukrainian government has informed the joint international investigation team that the crash site is under full control of the separatist group. Thus, the Ukrainian government has stated that it has been unable to establish a safe corridor to the crash site for the international team. The Ukrainian government has said it cannot guarantee the safety of the international team in and around and around the crash site. Meantime, our correspondent in Kuala Lumpur, Satish Cheney, said the rebels' refusal to turn over the crash site and what's been found there to international investigators is angering people in Malaysia. He spoke with Ian Pooler. Because of this news uh, of uh, holdup happening and uh, the Russian-backed rebels allegedly uh, t- hampering investigations and things like that, it has actually uh, escalated anger towards Russia in in Malaysia. A lot of people are actually asking for Malaysia and the international community to have some form of boycott of Russian products and services. And um, they are also asking their their own government to uh, have a tougher stand against uh, Russia. But uh, some political analysts I spoke to yesterday, they have said that Malaysia is in a very tough position because um, they realized that, you know, uh, perhaps antagonizing Russia at this point uh, would be a very bad move because they still hold, uh, hold the key to ensuring uh, pro- uh, investigations are done effectively. But certainly a lot of frustration and anger boiling over. And on Tuesday, there's a plan for a uh, rally and a march um, from the city center in Kuala Lumpur to an area where the Ukraine and Russian embassies are. Uh, this is uh, spreading like wildfire on social media, and we're expecting quite a number of people to show up for this march. Who's organizing the march? That's an interesting thing. Uh, according to the local media, no one knows who came up with it, but um, it's just spread on Twitter and Facebook, and everyone is encouraging uh, their fellow citizens to wear black and show up at this particular religious center in the city center, which is about uh, 30 minutes away from the area where the Ukraine and Russian embassies are located. 
RTHK's correspondent in Kuala Lumpur, Satish Cheney, speaking there with our Ian Pooler. The time is now 22 minutes before 9 o'clock. The chairman of the NPC Standing Committee, Zhang Dejiang, has said that not all pan-democrats could be considered unpatriotic. That's an indication that some would meet Beijing's criteria for becoming chief executive here. This emerged during meetings held in Shenzhen between Mr. Zhang and pro-establishment groups. RTHK's Wendy Wong has more. The chairman of China's top legislature, Zhang Dejiang, has stayed in Shenzhen to meet representatives of the local pro-establishment forces a day after he summoned the chief executive for an unscheduled meeting in the mainland city. He had told Si Wailang that Hong Kong should strictly follow the basic law when drafting its political reform proposal. He also told the Liberal Party leader, James Tian, that loving Hong Kong and China should be a requirement for candidates in future chief executive elections. But Mr Zhang did not rule out all pan-democrats when using this prerequisite. Mr Tian quoted Mr Zhang as saying that not all pan-democrats don't love Hong Kong and China. Meanwhile, sources also quoted Mr Zhang as saying that Beijing would definitely not accept Hong Kong to be influenced by what he called foreign forces. Responding to suggestions that the central government should lobby support from moderate Democrats, Mr Zhang expressed the hope to know how the upcoming political reform proposal will be able to gain two-thirds of votes in the Legislative Council. Commenting on the talks, New People's Party Michael Tian said he hoped pro-democracy lawmakers would take the opportunity to meet mainland officials if such chances arise. Every one uh, of the faction of the uh, pandemic has their version of a system that has certain uh, screening. The degree of screening is, I think, important to be discussed at closed-door meetings. The best way to move forward is to a different faction have the political courage to come into face-to-face meeting with the liaison office and to outline their version of what is an acceptable screening mechanism so that at least the negotiation can take a start. But Democratic Party lawmaker Wu Chiwai said the prerequisite for a constructive meeting is that that should not be political screening for the future chief executive candidates. I think the pan-democrats would like to communicate with any officials coming from central government or, uh, or from SAL government. But whatever the case, when we are talking about the screening system, we have a baseline. The baseline is there should not be any political screening. We think that the political screening, if it is uh, implemented or no, say it, it, it is adopted in the political reforms, then that will mean there is no room for further discussion. Legislative Council President Zhang Yuxing also said he hoped both sides could have more genuine communication as the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress is expected to make a decision on the issue later next month. RTHK's Wendy Wong reporting. Well, the former Chief Secretary Anson Chan and the founding chairman of the Democratic Party, Martin Lee, have expressed their concerns to Britain over Beijing's increasing intervention in local affairs here. They met Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg in a week-long visit to London. Ian Pooler asked Mrs. Chan whether the trip was fruitful. Well, first of all, we um, had extensive uh, and very good media coverage. The British media across the political spectrum uh, has taken the British government to task for not standing up for Hong Kong. 
uh, they've drew uh, attention to the concerns that we expressed to the people we met, uh, and their feeling is that as the co-signatory to the joint declaration, Britain does have a legal and a moral responsibility to stand by the joint declaration. After all, if one party to the joint declaration decides to rewrite the joint declaration and the basic law, and the other co-signatory simply just walks away, what does this say, not only to Hong Kong people, but to the British people? In your view, in what way has China violated the terms set out in the joint declaration? Well, this, everybody can see there is blatant interference from the liaison office and from Beijing, quite contrary to the provisions of the basic law. We see a steady erosion of two systems, particularly our core values, the rule of law and the rights and freedoms we enjoy, particularly press freedom. We have the white paper, which attempts to redefine the boundaries of one country, two systems, and progress on constitutional reforms have been crucially slow. So, and the light at the end of the tunnel, nobody can see what, what that light is. And every indication is that we're not going to fetch up with a set of genuine universal suffrage proposals that the people of Hong Kong can accept. So one country, two systems patently is not working. What sort of response did you get from uh, Nick Clegg, the Deputy Prime Minister, when you were in London? Well, we were encouraged by uh, our discussion with Nick Clegg. First of all, he made it quite clear that Britain will not shy away from defending the principle of one country, two systems. Um, he reaffirmed the promise that John Major, who was then the Prime Minister in 1996, at that time, John Major made a promise to the people of Hong Kong. He said that Hong Kong will never walk alone, that if China breaches the joint declaration, then Britain will rally international support and will use every legal and other avenue available to it to make China conform. Well, we've reached that situation now, and we expect the British government to stand up to its promise, and Nick Clegg made that quite clear. He furthermore, after our meeting, his office uh, issued a statement, uh, amongst other things. He accused David Cameron and George Osborne of being far too deferential towards China as they seek to boost British trade links with the country. Now, of course, we welcome growing ties between Britain and China. But this mustn't be at the expense of Hong Kong. That's the former Chief Secretary Anson Chan speaking on Hong Kong Today earlier this morning. Good morning to you. Thanks for joining us here on Money for Nothing. We sort of return to business and finance now, and then we'll have more news a little bit later in this half hour. And we'll be speaking with Bloomberg's Justin Wu in just a few minutes. Let's get a market update. In Australia, the main index is up 16 points. And in Seoul, the Kospi has picked up six points. So we see gains across the Asian markets that are open of about one third of one percent. A couple of key earnings coming up this week. Apple scheduled to report its fiscal third quarter. And uh, analysts are expecting uh, that uh, the earnings could be a dollar twenty-three per share. And if you take a look at the seven-for-one stock split that took effect in June, uh, that uh, could be uh, a pre-split seven forty-seven a share. So it looks like Apple could approach the former uh, peak price of seven hundred two dollars. It's trading just a little under hundred dollars now. And analysts are saying that Facebook share should be uh, that the uh, revenue should be up some fifty-five percent, and earnings are 
are expected to be 32 cents a share compared with net income of 19 cents a year ago. Well, for more on tech, Angelina Draper joins us for our regular 845 tech update. Angelina. Dell CEO Michael Dell announced on his Twitter account that the computer giant will accept payments in bitcoins. The company says they are now the largest e-commerce business to accept the virtual currency. Dell teamed up with Coinbase, a third-party payment processor that converts customers' bitcoins into dollars. In Europe, Google is no longer referring to mobile games as free if the user is offered the option to make purchases during play. The change comes as the European Commission works with customer with consumer protection organizations and app store owners such as Google and Apple to improve policies around in-app purchases for games and apps predominantly used by children. Google also promised to develop guidelines to prevent app developers from specifically targeting children. Nearly 200 managers from Samsung Electronics Company are reported to have voluntarily returned a quarter of their first half bonuses as a gesture to demonstrate they are taking responsibility for the company's earnings decline. Earlier this month, Samsung Electronics announced an operating profit guidance for the second quarter of the year that was far below most analysts' forecasts. The company's smartphone business has been losing market share as Chinese rivals such as Xiaomi and Lenovo Group offer feature-rich phones at a lower price. And finally, Starbucks Chief Digital Officer Jason Del Rey announced the company will allow customers in the U.S. to place orders from a mobile app later this year. He said the advanced ordering feature was in line with the way Americans are using their mobile devices to order products and services, quoting crab-hailing companies Uber and Lyft, as well as food ordering apps. No mention was made of an international rollout. Oh, and how cute. You did that from your mobile device. Yes, I'm going paperless. Yes. Actually, I have been for a while, but I'm trying to impose it You're here. so green. You are so green. That <laughs> was fantastic. No paper. She just sat there holding that phone in front of her and went through her two-minute report. Angelina, thank you very much. You're well, last week here on Money for Nothing, we took a look at solar power. Today, we take a look at wind. China is well behind its schedule to try to make itself the world's biggest market for offshore wind. China had planned to build 5,000 megawatts of offshore wind turbines in four years, but it is not going to make that schedule. It would have been enough to power 5.4 million homes. They're only about 10% of that capacity. Uh, they have only about 10% of that capacity in place. And joining us on the program is Justin Wu, Asia Pacific Analyst for Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Justin, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for waiting all that time. Uh, Justin, just so our audience knows, uh, came in at the start of the program. We've made him wait, but hopefully um, we'll get, you know, the best saved for almost uh, last. What is actually the holdup, Justin, uh, behind China's uh, offshore wind power offensive? Well, Brian, let's put something in perspective. Actually, China is the largest wind market in the world. So to um, give some sense of what how big that is, um, this year we're expecting China to build about 18 gigawatts of wind. So that's nearly 20% of all its new power capacity added this year will come from wind. But the problem about that is nearly all of that is onshore wind, so wind built on land. Um, and in China, that uh, they're able to do that at a very low cost. So nearly, uh, in some cases, about half the cost of uh, putting up a wind turbine in Europe or in the United States. So, uh, and is it also a lot more expensive to build it offshore? Absolutely. So if you look at offshore wind, the cost advantage that China has on onshore wind disappears. Uh, so offshore wind is about three to four times the cost of onshore wind. Uh, and the problem here is is really the cost. Uh, the high cost 
really makes it very difficult for, for China to build offshore wind, where most of that expertise actually is in Europe at the moment, and the technology is actually not in, in China. So is that the main constraint, then, cost? That's one reason why they're behind schedule according to what they had hoped to be in 2011. That's right, yeah. And cost is one of the biggest problems, and it's, it's very high. But the other issue you have to look at and really think about is why does China actually need offshore wind? Uh, it has plenty of desert and empty land out in the west. Uh, it has a lot of mountains and a lot of, a lot of good natural resources, essentially. Um, and if it can build onshore wind for such a low cost uh, out in, let's say, the deserts of Inner Mongolia or in the northwest, why does it need to build offshore wind in fairly difficult terrain uh, near really the east coast in Shanghai uh, where resources okay, are Okay, Justin, let me great. just, just uh, interrupt for a moment. Could you put your phone on the uh, floor or in your back pocket uh, getting some interference uh, as we often do? So go ahead. Sure. So, I mean, we have to look at the reason behind why. And, you know, there there's, could be several reasons why countries want to build offshore wind. Um, and not all of it is really from uh, wanting to generate power. So, first of all, one is there just a lot more wind offshore? I mean, you would think that there would be. There is, but not often the case. Uh, mm-hmm. In the case of China, if if you look at the coast of Shanghai, so they're looking at building offshore wind uh, along the the coast of Jiangsu Province in Shanghai, about ten or twenty kilometers off the coast of that. The wind resources there are actually not as good as uh, places like Inner Mongolia. Um, but the problem is, Inner Mongolia is a couple thousand kilometers away, uh, and there are no cities or factories there. Uh, all the people live around Shanghai, so it, it might make sense to build something close to where all your factories and, and your cities are. Uh, but the only problem is transmission. If you build transmission lines from Inner Mongolia to Shanghai, that's also quite expensive and, and also quite a uh, uh, sort of a large engineering task to undertake. You know, since a lot of in- investors listen to this program, which are the companies that are best situated to take advantage of uh, wind power in China? Well, wind power, you know, is not really uh, new energy in China in the sense that they're not really new companies that are sort of building it. Uh, if you look at most of the companies that are owning the wind assets in China, they're really familiar with names like Datang Power, uh, Longyuan, uh, Huadian, etc. Essentially, the big five government-owned exactly yep. government-owned utilities. Nearly all of them now are listed in Hong Kong. A uh, few of them are probably coming online, uh, you know, in terms of an IPO later this year or next year. So, I mean, overall, do you see this as a growth area, um, given that they, that our headline was that they're a little behind their own schedule, but also, as you mentioned, they're the largest wind power producer uh, in the world. Uh, is it a growth area or one that investors should be skeptical over? So overall, we, we are fairly bullish on looking at wind and renewables in China. Um, so what will we say is uh, by 2030, so in the next 15 years, China will basically double its uh, power capacity and nearly and more than half of that will come from renewables. So that's more than a trillion dollars of new investment expected in the next 15 years. What percentage of their overall um, power needs will be from renewables? And if you could, if you have uh, the uh, data handy, the split between wind and solar. Um, so probably about half, nearly 50 percent by 20, uh, 2030 or so will come That's from enormous. renewables. Uh, absolutely. That's enormous. Absolutely. I mean, even Germany is not there, are they? 
Germany is ahead right now. Germany's about 30%, uh, which is the largest in the world in terms of a major economy. But would it get to 50% by the year you cited? Um, that's one of its objectives, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. If, if you look at, so if you look at um, all the new power that's being added in all these countries, the majority is coming from renewables. Um, it is true that obviously, uh, you know, traditional energy such as gas or coal or nuclear does uh, generate more electricity. Uh, they were put into place much earlier, so they do generate at a much lower cost today. Uh, but if you look at the new capacity that's being added, so in other words, what we're building today for the future, uh, all across the world, the major, uh, a large portion of that is coming from uh, wind and solar and other renewable sources. How much wind might we see in Hong Kong over the next 10, 15 years? Uh, unfortunately, probably not that much. <laughs> um, th- there was obviously, you know, CLP obviously had a plan to put in an offshore wind farm uh, off off Saigon, uh, I think, uh, you know, a couple of years ago of this plan. Um, but after doing an assessment of it, you know, it was uh, viewed as a, a bit above average cost if you look at offshore wind. And obviously, in, in the current consultation that we have in Hong Kong, uh, there's a number of options, such as sourcing uh, probably cheaper renewable energy from the mainland or building more gas plants, which is also reduces pollution and is probably a, at a lower cost than building an offshore wind plant. Okay, let's take a look at Japan. Uh, Japan is on holiday today, but uh, kind of nice segue. It's Marine Day there, so you get the day off. Uh, Japan dipping their toes back into uh, the nuclear pot some three years after Fukushima. Um, will will we see you know a lot of nuclear restarts uh, in the next um, period? Well, what's happened so far is that basically two reactors in southern Japan just passed a, a key safety review. Um, so, you know, most are expecting that they might be re- restarted by the end of this year, October, November or so. Uh, but to put that into perspective, Japan has about 48 nuclear reactors, um, and all of them have been offline since the end of last year. These two reactors represent only 4% of the total of what uh, nuclear generation in Japan. So it's actually a very small portion of it. Uh, now, the question might be, is this symbolically significant in terms of Japan going back towards nuclear after what happened in Fukushima? Um, that might be the case, um, but if you look at it over a longer term, the majority of nuclear reactors in Japan probably will not be able to pass the new uh, stringent safety measures that are put in place by the government and the regulators. So even if we see some uh, restarts of nuclear, it probably will not go back to the way it was before the Fukushima disaster. Has Japan turned pretty much anti-nuclear as a result of Fukushima? Well, if you look at opinion polls in Japan, um, there's something like close to 60% of the public is opposed or uh, highly skeptical or f- fears the safety of nuclear. And that's up significantly from pre-Fukushima, uh, which was almost uh, non-existent. So in some ways, you can say politically Japan has... Uh, at least in terms of public opinion, has definitely shifted since 2011. Uh, the previous government before uh, uh, Prime Minister Abe's uh, Liberal Democrats came back to power last year uh, was anti-nuclear. Um, okay. But, of course, they lost the election. Now the new government, the Liberal Democratic Party, does support uh, the restart of the nuclear reactors. Okay. But they we- do face a tricky uh, political situation to do that. All right, Justin, thank you very much. Justin Wu from Bloomberg. Thank you. Well, we return to our news coverage now in Gaza. More than 60 Palestinians, mainly civilians, and 13 Israeli soldiers have been killed in the fiercest day of fighting since Israel launched its offensive into the area last week. The BBC's Paul Adams reports. 
All morning, Palestinians streamed out of Shaja'iyah, east of Gaza City. The whole area under intense bombardment since last night. Until this morning, civilians ignored Israeli warnings to leave. Now they've been killed in their homes and on the street. There are bodies everywhere. There are so many of my sisters and brothers injured and killed, he says. We don't know who's alive and who's dead. Where are they? What happened to them? For hours, ambulances were not able to reach the scene. But from first light, the dead and the wounded were rushed to Gaza's Shifa hospital. Inside, the corridors were full of despair, families fearing the worst. The staff here have experienced such emergencies before, but after two weeks of violence, this is as bad as anything. The Red Cross asked for a truce to get bodies out. Both sides agreed. We joined a convoy venturing deep into a neighborhood ravaged by shelling. Israel says Shejaia is a Hamas stronghold. Suddenly, there's danger. Just as we were with that convoy up the road, quite a lot of gunfire broke out. We're hearing what sounds like sniper fire. Someone's clearly not observing the ceasefire. With the truce hanging by a thread, we arrive at the scene of an enormous explosion. They find a woman buried in the rubble. They need to get her out, but there isn't much time. This time, the Israelis are shooting, but the ambulance crew is determined. Slowly, with great care, they work to free the woman. She's terribly wounded, but after 20 minutes, on her way to hospital. On this desperate day, it's a small victory. BBC's Paul Adams reporting. Well, that's our program for today. Money for Nothing, thanks for joining us. We'll be back again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. We'll leave you with the weather. Typhoon Matmo, centered about 740 kilometers east of Manila, moving across the seas to the east of the Philippines. Mainly fine today. Isolated showers, 32 as the high. Morning Brew is next.